Welcome to Wisdom Trek with Gramps. I am Guthrie Chamberlain and we are on day 2140 of our trek. The purpose of Wisdom Trek is to create a legacy of wisdom, to seek out discernment and insights, and to boldly grow where few have chosen to grow before. Today we continue with our extended series of messages that I delivered at Putnam Congregational Church over the past couple of years. This message is week 8 of a 43-week series on the good news according to John the Apostle. John has a unique style and narrative as we walk with him through the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. I pray that it will be a conduit of learning and encouragement for you. Thank you, Susan and kids. You appreciate it. That was a great message, Susan. Maybe we should just all go home now. <laughs> uh, better be careful. I might hear a lot of amens on that one. <laughs> uh, I do appreciate all those that help out with their children's message. They're a blessing to me, and certainly I just pray they're a blessing to the kids also. While they're getting settled there, let's go ahead and get started as we continue our series this morning on the good news according to John the Apostle. And today we're going to learn that Jesus is concerned for, and he also loves those are rejected by others. It will see in our message today. Now, I was going to go through verses 1 through 42, but about midweek, I realized there's just no way I can get through that many verses and do justice to it. So we're going to concentrate on verses 1 through 26 today, and it's on pages 1651 and 1652 in your pew Bible. So if you want to open that and follow along, I'm not going to read the, message, or the verses up front. I'm going to include them as part of the message today. Now, once the John the baptizer announced that Jesus was the Messiah, the Lord wasted no time in calling his disciples. And within 48 hours, he had chosen five hand-selected students to begin the training for the transformation of the world. They had seen Jesus perform miracles in chapter 2. Also in chapter 2, they saw him, his passionate desire for revival. In verse, chapter 3, they heard him preach and teach, and they heard about his conversation with Nicodemus. And the time had come for them to glimpse now their future as evangelist. Jesus was a Jewish reformer, but now he would become Jew Jesus, the missionary. And he wanted to show his students how to reach the world outside of Judaism. Because up to this point, Everything was focused on the Jews because they were God's chosen people. They were the covenant people. And that's who was focused on up to this point, even with John the baptizer. He took those who were Jews and, made, and, and had them go through that ritual baptism of repentance, just like a Gentile would. But it was all focused on the Jews until this story in John's gospel. Now, between Galilee to the north and Judea and Jerusalem to the south, there was another area. If you'll take your maps and your insert on your, in today's bulletin, you'll see that Galilee was clear to the top of the map. Judea, where Jerusalem was, was at the bottom of the map. And then in the middle was this no man's land called Samaria. And Jesus knew that they needed to hear the good news also. 
Now, Jews traveled to between Judea and Galilee, usually avoiding Samaria, the land they considered defiled by Gentiles' intermarriage and religious mixture. They were polytheistic. They worshipped multiple gods in Samaria. And rather than walk on that impure soil, they descended the mountains coming out of Jerusalem to the Jordan Plain. And they journeyed along the east side of the Jordan River and then turned west back into Galilee. Jesus, however, chose a different route, as he often did. He took a direct route from Jerusalem up to Galilee or Cana, which took him right through Samaria and past the town of Sakar. Verses 1 through 3, we trace Jesus' movements in the gospel. And John was not always helpful, not nearly as helpful as Luke as far as positioning him geographically and chronologically as, as Luke did. However, the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, don't tell us much about the Lord's ministry in Judea. We learn from John that he frequently traveled between Jerusalem and Galilee, and he always took that direct route. In verses 1 through 3, let me read that. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. So the indication is he often traveled this route. And in this case, he sensed his ministry in Judea was attracting too many unwanted attentions or reasons. The truth will always stir up controversy, but Jesus was not, at least this point in time, interested in squaring off with the Pharisees. This was earlier in his ministry, and he doesn't do that where he really confronts them until John chapter 15. But in verse 4, he says, now he had to go through Samaria. Now, the, first, the phrase had to is translated from the Greek verb meaning to be necessary or it was required. Now, anyone unfamiliar with Samaria's history might look at the map and say, well, that makes sense. If you're going to go to Galilee, you would take the most direct route through Samaria. So they wouldn't think anything particular about John's choice of word. It was required. It was necessary. And Sychar, if you look at the map, would be a natural stopping off point, about halfway between, a little less than halfway between the two points. And this would be a good place to stop and rest, refresh, because there was a city there. Now, to the Jews, though, the Samaritans were idolatrous half-breeds. They were ethnically polluted, they were religiously confused, and they were morally debased. Moreover, during a particular dark time in Israel's history, the Hebrews inhabited the region where they intermarried with Gentiles, and they established their own temple to rival the one that was in Jerusalem. And their temple was built on Mount Gerizim, and as you see on the map, Mount Gerizim is real close to Sychar, the, the city there. So consequently, the Jews, and particularly the Pharisees, and remember the word Pharisee means separated one, would not set foot on Samaritan soil. And frankly, the Samaritans didn't want to have anything to do with the Jews either. There was no love lost between the Samaritans and the Jews. But to avoid contamination, 
Most Jews traveled between Galilee and Judea, choosing that eastward route down the Jordan Valley, where the Jordan River was, instead of going straight through Samaria. So to say it was necessary or required to pass through Samaria suggests that the need was not geographical. Jesus didn't go through that territory because it was a convenient way to go to Galilee. If he was a good Jew, he would cross over on the Jordan and go over to the other side. But if we look at verses 5 and 6, it says, So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar. Near the plot of ground, Jacob had given to his sons. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, as tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well, and it was about noon. So John includes these little clips in here. And if you look at the measuring stick on your map, there's a measurement for 20 miles. If you would invert that, you would see that Sychar is probably 25 miles, maybe 30 miles with the hills between Jerusalem and Sychar. So it was not a short walk for them. They must have gotten up very early because it was about noontime that they arrived. So they walked this 25 miles in the morning and then stopped at Sychar. John locates the city in Samaria, Sychar, not terms of geographical location. John didn't say, well, about halfway between Judea and Galilee is a city called Sychar. No, he says, this is where Jacob gave the land to his children. And this is where a well was dug by Jacob. And who was Jacob? His name was later changed to Israel. He was the father of the Israel nation the 12 sons that he had. And he'd given this land to his sons, as we're told in Genesis 33. But this is also the place where the bones of Joseph, remember the favored son with a coat that was sold into slavery and then became the prime minister of Egypt? This is where his bones were buried. They carried his bones. One of the things Joseph promised, made his brothers promise him when they left Egypt, that they would take his bones outside of Egypt and they planted him here or buried him there where this well was. John's mention of the well was not accidental. It was intentional as part of his gospel to get across the message that he had about Jesus Christ. Samaria had no major rivers on it. They were, these wells were fed by what was called wadis. These are little um, natural drainage channels in the mountains and the hills that would drain during the rainy season, and they would drain down into these wells. But they had no natural rivers themselves. This area dried up during this season. It was completely dried. And Jeremiah used these wadis as an image of the deceit in in Israel, in Jeremiah 15, 18, that you would expect them to have water in them, but they were all dried up. And that's what these wadis were. The historical location of the presence of Jacob's well gave Jesus, and therefore John, as he wrote this gospel, another perfect opportunity to draw upon that familiar symbol for life, which is water, as Sue explained so well in the children's message. This was early in May, during the barley harvest time, and the sun would have been very high at noontime, and it would have been very hot and dry an arid, dusty land. And Jesus traveled throughout the morning, and they had to stop for food and water to continue their journey. 
And the New Living Translation says that Jesus sat warily beside the well. Just think, the creator of the universe was plumb tuckered out. He had to sit and rest and gain nourishment from the world that he created. Verses 7 and 8, when the Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? The New Living Translation says, please give me a drink. So he is very polite. Now a sidebar, John writes in verse 8, his disciples had gone into town to buy food. So his disciples weren't with him. Jesus was alone at this well. And as John tells the story, this portion is what we would have, he must have heard from Jesus because John wasn't there at the time. And this appearance of this woman at this well was not coincidental. Although it might appear to be, she happened to come while they were away. But again, two familiar customs of the day would notify anybody that knew about this that there was something wrong, two ominous details. First of all, the woman came out alone. Women did not go to the well alone. They always came in groups for three reasons. One, to help each other draw water out. Secondly, to protect each other from ruffigans. And thirdly, to socialize. It was their time of socialization when they came out early morning and late evening to get water. They usually came out those two times a day. The best time to carry water was obviously in the cool of the day, early morning or late in the evening. But this woman with her five-gallon container trudged from the city in the heat of the day. This 40 pounds of water, let alone the weight of the jug itself that she had to carry, not only to the well, but when it was filled, she had to huff it back all the way into town. This was unusual. So two things was that she was alone, and it was in the middle of the day. The circumstances appeared curious. When you have to realize that he said, we had to go through Samaria. And now we see the reason why they had to go through Samaria. Because Jesus had a divine appointment. It becomes a little clearer now. Because there's no coincidences in God's economy. Now Jesus broke the tradition of, the, of his day by just talking to a woman. In public, the Jews did not talk to their own fellow Jewish women while they were in public. It just was a taboo. And then he asked her to quietly to draw some water out of the well to give to him. So Jesus, although he would never break a commandment or behave immorally, he routinely defied and sometimes appeared to take delight in the nonsensical customs of their religion. They weren't based on biblical precepts. They were based on what the Pharisees had written down. Remember 24 chapters on just how to keep the Sabbath? They had all sorts of rules for everything you could think. He had come to redeem this woman, and that was his purpose. He knew how to reach her. She wore an emotional armor of a woman that was beaten down by the morality of the righteous people of her day. Nevertheless, he honored her and her closely guarded her vulnerability. And he did so by being kind to her. This was unheard of in Jesus' day. 
And as we read how Jesus engaged this woman in conversation, take note of six repeated cycles here. Six times Jesus appealed to this woman, and six times she attempted to deflect the discussion to something else. And if you look at your bulletin insert on the other side from the map, the first section there, that Jesus does not give up on us. And through the rest of this message, we're going to see that Jesus appealed to her kindness in verse 7. The woman responded defensively. Next, Jesus appealed to her curiosity in verse 10, and the woman responded sarcastically in verses 11 and 12. Jesus appealed to her spiritual need in verses 13 and 14, but the woman was focused only on her physical need in verse 15. Jesus appealed to her personal interest, but the woman responded with a half-truth in verse 17. Jesus appealed to her conscience in verses 17 and 18, and the woman raised a controversial issue completely avoid from what he, Jesus was talking about in verses 19 and 20. And then Jesus appealed to her will, and the woman tried to delay making a decision in verse 25. Let's dig deeply into these six controversial points that Jesus confronted this woman with. As we go on to verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Then John's sidebar is, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Now the woman's response was defensive. Christ asked for water, a simple request, and she comes back with an argument. The way John records her words reveals how shocked she was in her mind. And then her mind was going through, you are a Jew, you despise me as a non-Jew, you despise me as a woman, and you despise me as a Samaritan. I already have three strikes against me. You can't instantly overcome centuries of prejudice over barriers like this. Now, John underscores the cultural prejudice for anyone who might have missed why she was having this tension here, why she was confused that he was asking her for this water. As we go on to verse 10, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God... And who it was that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Jesus didn't react with defensiveness of his own. The structure of his sentence is a Greek emphasis, and the adjective that he was emphasizing his, here is living water, which was a gift from God. In the puzzling statement, Jesus deliberately laced his comment with an enticing phrase, and then casually delivered it to this woman. The statement would be no less outrageous if you and I were having a conversation, and I suddenly said, well, back on Mars where I'm from, they have free cable TV all the time. It was just out of the blue, and it caught this woman off guard. People who think he was joking, but Jesus clearly had extended this to her, excite her, her curiosity, to get her curious, to get her thirsty about what he was talking about. Verses 11 and 12. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? who gave us this well and drank from it himself, and as did also his sons and their livestock? 
Now here it shows that she actually had a quick wit. She was responding with sharp sarcasm, saying, get real, fella. Where are you going to get this living water? You don't even have anything to draw it with. And are you better than Jacob who dug this well? The woman was knowledgeable and had somewhat of a delightful sense of humor here. However, her rough life had ground her wit to a razor's edge. Undoubtedly, many men had charmed her and then left her broken. Now, any man who thinks that they're God's gift to women should think again, is what she was saying. Most men would have gotten the message and backed off from this woman. But Jesus didn't want her to use her as other men used her. In verses 13 and 14, Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become a spring of water welling up into eternal life. New Living Translation says, becomes a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Now, Jesus bypassed this sarcastic assault and appealed to her spiritual needs because that's what he was going after. She needed new life. Sin had destroyed her old life, both from a theological sense and from an emotional sense, and obviously from a physical sense too. She had long since stopped living and was merely existing, trudging through life, day after day, going out at the high noon to fetch her water. Her death life experience would soon end in eternal death if she didn't make a choice. Now, Jesus played upon the images of well water. Now, these wadis would drain into this, this well, Jacob's well. And during the rainy season, the water would be flowing in. But once the dry season hit, what happened to that water in the well? It became stagnant. It just sat there. The only movement of the water is when they were drawing water back out. That stagnant water that sits there all during the dry season. And this was the comparison that Jesus was trying to get across here. He needed new life. He had destroyed her old life. And she needed eternal life. Jesus has played upon this, this well image and described the kind of life for those who believed in him. Those who trust in Christ never need to look on the outside for satisfaction because it dwells within us once we've accepted Christ, supplying every emotional and spiritual need. They will never need to go without water again. And last week I did an object lesson with water. It's not the same one. Today, our water, the living water that pours in us, not only pours in us, but overflows in our lives. It's like that bubbling spring. Of water that bubbles out from us. That overflows to us. That's that living water that Jesus Christ is talking about. It cannot be contained within us. It bubbles to the surface if we have Jesus Christ in our lives. As we move on to verse 15, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I can't, won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. But in her mind, she was saying, I'm tired of being ridiculed. I'm tired of being ostracized. I'm tired of the life that I'm living. 
please give me this water so I don't have to come every day at the high noon and draw this water out, being ostracized by the rest of the city. Now, either the woman in this case was spiritually tone deaf or deliberately avoided what the real issue was. People often avoid talking about spiritual matters because physical needs are easier to satisfy. They frequently provide us a way to escape. But it also drives us to all sorts of compulsions and addictions. People who avoid spiritual discussions do so because they want to protect themselves from that personal pain that's in their life. They have learned to cope with their hopelessness. They don't want anything upsetting that delicate balance that we've constructed in our lives. And many of us at times fall into the same trap. So the woman took the conversation back into the shadow saying, well, give me this water. I don't want to have to come out and face my problems every day. But Jesus came back with something unexpected. Verse 16, he says, he told her, go call your husband and come back. And this opens the whole scenario. Jesus put the end to her coy battering and her innocent request. At the surface level, he appealed to her personal interest. Now, most other conversations, no one would have thought about that. If Jesus asked any other woman in town, go fetch your husband and bring him back, they would have said, okay. But Jesus knew her dilemma and what it posed for her. She undoubtedly felt stung and probably connected finally that thirst that Jesus was talking about to her current living arrangements. Of course, Jesus knew her situation. He knew all about her promiscuous life. He went directly to her need of acceptance and appealed to her deepest personal longing. The woman responded, responded evasively. She had hoped to shift the topic of conversation to an acceptable side of her half-truth. Verses 17 and 18, I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands, and the man you are now with is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Now Jesus used his supernatural knowledge to take this conversation below the surface, to set aside all the fun and games, and appeal to her conscience. It's noteworthy that Jesus didn't condemn her about it. He didn't shame her, saying, shame on you. He didn't exploit her sinfulness. He merely stated the truth and let it stand on its own. The man she was living with was not her husband. She had been in six temporary, had six temporary men in her long line of temporary men in her life. And despite this ugly reality, Jesus found a way to commend her for her truthful half of her half-truth in saying, you are true. What you said was quite true. The woman didn't feel so threatened as to run away. And you would think, well, if somebody exposed my life like this, I'm going to escape. Exposing the source of sh someone's shame too quickly feels us like we're feeling emotionally naked. And the only natural response when we feel exposed is to run for cover. But Jesus' timing was perfect in her life. He had already established a rapport. He was kind to her. He was passionate, patient with her. He allowed the woman to see his genuine concern 
for a person and not an object as other people viewed her. He tempted or treated her with uncommon dignity that she would never experience in her life and spoke compassionately to her spiritual need. He did not allow her to redirect him from the real issue involved, including the attempt to flatter him in her next statement, and then engage in a pointless debate. So she felt somewhat probably trapped. Well, he knows all about me. He's exposed me, and I'm standing here spiritually naked. So instead of dealing with that, she says, Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. In other words, she says, Oh, you've been to seminary. You're a learned teacher. You must be brilliant. Let me ask you something that I've always wondered about. How do you reconcile the great debate that revolved around the most appropriate place to worship an omnipresent God? But Jesus wasn't fooled. In verses 21 through 24, he says, Woman, or dear woman, as we know from the scripture, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain, which was Mount Gerasim near Sychar, nor in Jerusalem where the other temple was, You Samaritans worship what you don't know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come where true worshipers worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, I wish I could think as quickly as Jesus did on his feet. Of course, I'm far from being God. But he neither indulged her comments nor ignored her question. Instead, he used her attempt to distract the conversation to get back to the real issue. Jesus responded by appealing to her will, and he presented her with three challenges. And I've listed those in the bulletin under true worship. First of all, he says, the physical location of worship is secondary concern to God. It's not really important where you worship. The fact is, are you worshiping the one true God? The temple was given for the benefit of man. God did not need a temple to be worshipped. He did not need a temple to dwell in. The temple merely serves as a focus for our wandering attention. One reason why we gather together as believers, to help us to fellowship with one another, to refocus our attention on true worship. Many Jews faithfully worshipped God when they were moved thousands of miles away during the exile and the temple was destroyed. They still worshipped their God like Daniel did and his three friends. Secondly, the object of worship is the primary in heaven. But it had become secondary in Samaria. Make no mistake, the Samaritan temple was designed to be in direct confrontation or obstruction to the temple in Jerusalem. The reconstruction's that Ezra and Nehemiah rebuilt the temple. And the men who built it did not know, and Mount Gerizim did not know that one true God. Now Jesus shied away, never shied away from any uncomfortable truth. The Samaritans were indeed idolatrous people. They worshipped multiple gods. They did not worship the one true God. And thirdly, the quality of worship is the true measure of devotion. Because even as Jesus spoke to this woman in Samaria, the Jewish religious leaders were polluting the temple in Jerusalem. 
with their money-changing schemes that we talked about a couple weeks ago. Therefore, the temple in Jerusalem was no better or no worse than the temple at Mount Gerasim. The Lord wants genuine, spiritually empowered worship. The woman had done all she could to distract Jesus. From every time he brought something up, she brought something to try to distract him back again, getting off the subject of what he was talking about. And she does so again in verse 25 and 26, the last two verses in this section. The woman said, I know that the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. She was saying, well, what you say might be true. I don't know. You know, maybe. Well, we'll wait for the Messiah to come to clarify whether what you said was true or not. But Jesus would have none of it. Then Jesus declared in verse 26, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Because the woman had fell back into her last line of defense, one commonly used today, when people are approached their need of Jesus Christ, they delay the decision. He tried to backpedal out of the conversation, claiming that all matters of theology would be sorted out in the future when that Messiah comes to resolve them. Now, the Samaritans expected a Messiah like Moses, somebody who was a teacher or a prophet, less a ruler or a priest, as mentioned in Deuteronomy 18. Now, according to this line of reasoning, no one can really say what truth is and what it isn't until that great teacher comes to reveal all things to us. But don't we fall into the same trap today? A large segment of believers are more focused on being taken out of the world because they think it's corrupt and all they're looking for is the Lord's coming and some feel there's a rapture that's coming to take us out all this chaos. Instead, we should be about building God's kingdom on earth today. We don't know eschatology, the end times, with any certainty. We may be raptured out, we may not be. We may be left here on earth till the Lord comes again and builds his global kingdom. In light of that, we need to be focused on building God's kingdom. That's what's most important. We need to be engaging culture of today and changing that culture. Remember the series on the Sermon on the Mount where the world was turned upside down and we need to turn it right side up. That's our occupation for today. Let us not get distracted by the whims of the world. Now this attempt to back out of the conversation for the woman played perfectly into Jesus' hands. John's description of this encounter builds toward this climax. The Lord successfully bypassed all her defenses and laid the ultimate truth out before her. He said, in effect, well, good. I'm glad you mentioned that. I just happen to have a response. You don't have to wait any longer. I am the Messiah. I am here just as was promised. You know what it happened? It left that woman without any excuses. Every excuse was taken away. The phrase, I am is a particular emphatic Greek word called ego eimi. And it harkens back to that God's self-identification in that burning bush with Moses in Exodus 3, where he says, Moses says, well, who do I tell him sent me? And God comes back through Jesus Christ, that figure in the bush, says, I am who I am. Tell them I am has sent you. And so both the Jews and the Samaritans understood Jesus' meaning. 
And throughout John's gospel, we'll see this religious leaders accuse Jesus of blaspheming, claiming to be God because he represented that I am that he so often proclaimed. Now, our closing song today is going to be the hymnal 481, and it's Fill My Cup, Lord. And let me read the first verse in the chorus to it. Like the woman at the well, I was seeking for things that could not satisfy. And then I heard my Savior speaking, draw from the well that never shall run dry. Fill my cup, Lord. Fill it up, Lord. I lift it up, Lord. Come and quench the thirsting of my soul. Bread of heaven, who Jesus was. Feed me till I want no more. Fill my cup. Fill it up and make me whole. Make it overflow in my life. My cup overflowing with your righteousness. Now that Jesus had settled every objection to the Samaritan woman, he recognized him finally as the Messiah. And guess what she did next? Well, next week, we'll continue our message, The Woman Who Shares That Living Water. So I encourage you to read chapter 4, verses 27 through 42, to see what that one woman, by accepting Jesus Christ, did for her city. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you are the living water that never shall run dry. You bubble up. From our very soul, Father, as we drink you in, you bubble up and overflow in our life. Help us to be like this Samaritan woman, ready to receive you, to share your good news with others, Father. We thank you that you are the living water through Jesus Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen. I pray that this message was a blessing and a time of learning from God's Word. Thank you so much for allowing me to be your guide, your mentor, but most importantly, I am your friend, as I serve you through the Wisdom Trek podcast and journal each day. And as we take this trek of life together, let us always live abundantly, love unconditionally, listen intentionally, learn continuously, lend to others generously. Lead with integrity and leave a living legacy each day. I am Guthrie Chamberlain reminding you to keep moving forward, enjoy your journey, and create a great day every day. See you next time for more wisdom from God's Word.